Well, good morning again and happy Easter. We are so glad that you have all come to worship with us this morning. I know there are people here with all kinds of different backgrounds, and so I want to say a special thank you to you for the honor it is to get a chance to worship with you, uh, or at least talk a little bit about the resurrection of Christ with you, because that's what we're here to do. And matter of fact, that's what we do every single Sunday. At Providence, we don't celebrate the resurrection once a year. We celebrate it every single Sunday because it is fundamental to the faith. Because, I mean, if the resurrection is not real, if it did not happen, if Jesus did not rise again, then the few billion of us on earth today who worship Jesus as God are gullible. And our hope for a resurrection life after, his, after this life is the hope of deceived idiots. If Jesus did not rise again, then Freud and Nietzsche and Marx are all right in their critiques of Christianity. We're wasting our time. But if Jesus did rise again, then it's all true. It's all true. Every word of it is true if Christ rose again. And there's no bigger thing to think on than who Christ is and what he's done. If he rose again, it's all true. And that means that there's hope then for sinners, broken people like me and like you. Because of what Jesus has accomplished in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. That we have no hope in ourselves, but we have all hope in Christ at being made right with God because of what he did. Not what we do, what he did in our place for us. And so this morning, that's really all we're going to talk about. What Christ has done for us. And so whether you are, um, you know, a long-term Christian or just kind of thinking about Christianity, or you're here just to get somebody off your back. <laughs> Regardless of why you're here, I want to share with you this morning this, this great mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it's been displayed from cover to cover, how it's one story. That the Bible is not just a bunch of disconnected stories about you know, be good like Johnny over here, or be kind like Sue over here. And I don't know why I said Johnny and Sue. Sorry if Johnny, Sue, you're out there. But it's not these disconnected morality stories. And it's also not just a list of rules to try to obey and make ourselves good with God as if we could when he demands perfection. But it's a singular story. And so I don't want to try to show that to you this morning. And we're going to do that out of 1 Timothy chapter 3. So if you'll make your way to 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one around you. And that we're going to be on page 992 in those Bibles that are around you. And actually what we're doing is we're just continuing on in our series through 1 Timothy that, that we've been in here at Providence. Uh, it's pretty much what we do. We just walk through books of the Bible. And uh, so we're not even taking a break from that. We are just continuing on this morning in that because where we're at in the flow of 1 Timothy 3 is uh, Paul, who's the author, writing to uh, Timothy, a, a young Padawan, if you will, in the faith, uh, who's a pastor of a church at Ephesus, and it's a public letter to be read by the Ephesian church. Where we're at is 
Paul's going to quote an ancient hymn. So this is probably written about 64 AD, so we're about 30 years after Jesus has ascended back into heaven and liturgy had already begun to be established. And so there's this hymn that he's going to quote, and we're just going to kind of make our way through that hymn because it lays out this one story of the gospel, the great mystery of Jesus Christ. And so let us come and behold the wondrous mystery together. So if you're there on page 992 in the Bibles around you, or whatever page it is in your own personal Bible, we'll begin in chapter 3 with verse 14. Look at that with me. This is the Word of God. I hope to come to you soon. All right, Paul writing. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, all right? So Paul wants to come visit the Ephesian church, but he's saying, listen, I may not make it. I may get arrested again. He's already been arrested once. I may be put in prison, maybe shipwrecked, whatever reason. I may not make it. And so I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so he's describing here what the church is to be. Now granted and acknowledge the church has failed often to live up to this, historically and presently. But this is who the church is to be. We're to be a household of God. That is, we are a family. God's our Father. Fellow church members are brothers and sisters. The church of the living God, the ecclesia, the assembly of the living God. He's not dead, he's alive a pillar and buttress of the truth. That the church is to be founded on the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word. And like a pillar holds up the roof of a building, so the church is to hold up the truth for the world to see. And so specifically then, what is this truth? Look at verse 16 with me. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And so this truth is a great mystery. Now, when you see mystery in the New Testament, it's not talking about something that's unsolved. Like there was that show back in the day, Unsolved Mysteries. It's not talking about something that's unsolved, but rather when it says mystery in the New Testament, it's talking about something that was once hidden, but has now been revealed. And what is that? What was once hidden that's now been revealed? It's the person and work of Christ. It's Jesus. Because you look at the rest of uh, verse 16, and this is where we get into that ancient hymn. It just lays out what Christ has done. Look at that with me. Into verse 16. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And so Jesus is the great mystery that was once hidden. Jesus is the great mystery that now has been revealed. And Jesus is the truth that the church is to hold up for the world to see. And so this morning, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to hold Jesus up for us to see and to see this great mystery displayed from cover to cover. This one story. And so to do that, we're going to go to the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, 1. And I'm going to give you the outline of the Bible before we even do that. If this is your first time at Providence, you've not heard this. If this is even your second time at Providence, you probably have heard this. But the outline of the Bible is creation, 
and then the fall of man into sin, redemption, and a coming restoration. That's the, that's the outline of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's, that's, that's the outline. And so when we go creation then, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so the Bible begins with the assumption that there is an all-powerful, omniscient, eternal God. He's always been. Now your two options are either there's eternal matter that just is, no cause, or there's an eternal God who caused everything. And so you have this eternal God who created everything out of nothing. So there was nothing, and he spoke into the nothingness and created. So he created a universe because he wanted to. That's how big he, is. he can do what he wants. So he created a universe. And in that universe, he created stars, and he created galaxies, and he created supernovas, and he created solar systems. And in one particular solar system, on one particular planet, he created oceans, and continents, and rivers, and mountains, and plants, and animals. And with great care and concern, he designed this immaculate garden. And in the midst of that garden, he put what he said was his crowning achievement of all creation. People. Humans. Made in his image. In the image of God, he made them. Male and female, he created them. And he placed them in the garden. And for a minute, everything was perfect. There was no sin. There was no suffering. There was no stress. Just Perfection, fulfillment, joy. And there were no rules except one. Don't eat from this one particular tree. You can climb in it. You can pick its fruit and play baseball with it if they had baseball. But you can do, like, just don't eat it. Just don't eat it. This is where everything goes south because Adam and Eve believe the same lie that we so often believe. God's telling me not to do that because he's, he's keeping something from me. He didn't want, like, if you really love me, he would let me do this one thing. Why is he not letting me do this one thing? He must be keeping something from me. So he's not after my joy. So I know what I'll do. I know better than God does. I know better than God does at what will make me happy. I know better than God does at what is good and right and true. So, uh-uh, God. I'm going to do what I want here. I'm going to do what I want, what will make me happy. And so, in that one act, that's what they did. And in that one act of disobeying God, one rule, just one rule, one act of treason against their king, they fractured the universe. Sin came into the world, and sin broke everything. And as a result of sin, I mean, creation itself became, became marred. And so into this perfection, now marred, broken, came death, came disease, came suffering, came tsunamis and hurricanes and murder and violence and greed and poverty and starvation and injustice and racism and unwanted children and human trafficking and pollution and mental health issues and genocide and school shootings and war and rape. The list could go on and on. The world was broken then. And we see it now. 
A day does not go by where we don't see the brokenness of the world and indeed the brokenness of our own selves. Because it's not just stuff out there. It's in here. It's in me. The darkness of my thoughts, of your thoughts, we're broken people. And all these things, these are not part of God's good design. They're the result of sin and the marring of God's good creation. And because of that, like I said, we're, we're all tainted. We're all sinful. Now, we don't like this, and so our culture pushes real hard against this idea. We don't like this idea that we're all sinners. Instead, we like to live in a myth that we're actually good people who just happen to do bad things sometimes. But if we're good people, then why do we do bad things? If we're good people, we do good things. So somebody's like, well, that, Joe, that's because none of us are perfect. That's the point. We're not perfect. God is. And he demands perfection. Anything less than that, he cannot smile upon because he's good and he's holy and he's loving and he's perfectly holy. And we're not. So we've got this big, big problem, this separation from God because of our sin. And the crazy thing about this is I'm not even talking about us on our worst day. We would all grant that on our worst day. But the truth of the Bible is that even on our best day, God is so holy, we are far from Him. We're all sinners. And I'm not standing up here like some backwoods preacher trying to talk about how there are good people and there are bad people and God loves the good people and He hates the bad people. No, no, no. The Bible clearly teaches that there are bad people and there's Jesus. And we're all in the bad people camp. So don't stand up here and try to have a swagger about some supposed level of morality. We're all sinners. Every single one of us. Every single one of us. We all turn our backs on God. We all, like sheep, have gone astray and are deserving of punishment. Because we're all rebels. And so if the story ended there, there would be no hope. But it doesn't end there. And we're, we're just now to Genesis 3. And even there, God makes a promise. I'm going to send someone, a Messiah, who's going to come and he's going to make right all that's gone wrong. And in Genesis 12, he cements that promise of hope a little bit more as he shows up to a Gentile Iraqi pagan man named Abram, renames him Abraham and says, I'm going to send the Messiah. He's going to come through your line. You're going to be mine. You're going to serve me. And so it just starts rolling out after that. God hears Israel's cry in Egypt. He sends a deliverer, but his promise of hope still not satisfied. He gives them the law, but the hope still is not there. They enter the promised land, but that's still not their hope. He gives them a sacrificial system, but their hope's still not satisfied. He sends them prophets. They don't listen. Israel goes into captivity. And then there's 400 years of silence. And it looks like hope has failed. It's unfulfilled. And then out of that silence, 
there's a scream of hope in the least likely of places. A crazy man in the desert eating locusts and honey and wearing fur screams out, prepare the way of the Lord. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so it's been Old Testament, hope's coming, hope's coming, hope's coming, hope's coming. New Testament, John the Baptist shows up and says, it's here, looking at Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so that now brings us to this ancient hymn. The first line of it, you can see it on the screens behind me. It says, he was manifested in the flesh. That is, the Son of God became a man. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. The incarnation of Christ. And so the Son of God is manifested in the flesh. He comes into the world. And what does He come into the world to do? He comes and first lives that perfect, sinless life that God demands that none of us have lived. That all of us fail to live. Jesus comes and does it perfectly for us. As our substitute. And then... He lays down his life willingly as a payment for the sin that we have committed, that we owe, the sin that we owe, the punishment we deserve. Jesus lays his life down for it and willingly absorbs the wrath of God against our sin that we absolutely, completely, and undeniably deserve. We did it. And again, I want to highlight that word willingly, even as we did on Friday. Because I think sometimes we have this wrong idea in our heads as we think about the cross and we think of Jesus as if he's just passive in the whole thing. And all this stuff's just happening to him. And, you know, bless his heart, there's just nothing he could do about it. And so we feel sorry for him when there's not anything happening to him. He's Allow, like he's causing this, he's working in this. Why? To bring us redemption. At any moment, he could have stopped it. This is a guy who walks on water. This is a guy who shouts at a storm, shut up, and it obeys him. This is a guy who says, Lazarus, you've been dead four days, and I know your sister said you stinketh, but I say, come out of the grave. At any moment, he could have shut it down with a word, just blown him up. But he doesn't. He goes through with it, willingly. I've been a Christian now for over three decades. And so this still, when I think about what happened to God the Son on Good Friday, hanging on the cross, being slaughtered, that in that moment, He's taking upon Himself my sin. I can think back over my life, all the stuff I've done that deserves God's just condemnation. And that on the cross, all of that, and not just me, but the world, put on Jesus and he suffers and he dies in my place. That it 
when, like, when they grabbed Jesus and they beat him and they spit on him and they yanked the beard out of his head, they pound the crown of thorns into his head and they slap him and they rip the skin off of his back and they drive nails through his hands and through his feet, hang him on the cross, and then the very people he came to save come to just watch out, come watch him bleed out, drowning in his own blood. rejoicing at this brutal slaughter. What's happening in that moment? In 2 Corinthians 5.21, he's making him, that is Jesus, to become sin. My sin. Your sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so it's this transaction. It's this changing of places. What happens then is now because of Jesus, the angry wrath that I deserve has been taken from me. And the love that I do not deserve has been granted to me because of what Christ did. That's what happened on the cross. The iniquities of us all were laid on him and by his stripes we are healed. But in doing that, he dies. A dead Savior? What? The disciples are confused. What, what's going on? I thought this was the one, and now he's dead? And so, once again, all this hope that had been coming, and now they think it's here, it once again appears lost. He's dead. He's in a tomb. But to quote S.M. Lockridge, it was only Friday. Sunday was coming. And so then early on Sunday morning, the ladies go to the tomb... And there's no one home. Because the next line in our hymn, look at it. Vindicated by the Spirit. This is the resurrection. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's the gospel, wasn't this? Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And so when Jesus rose, again, it was demonstrating that God the Father accepted Christ's suffering and death as full payment for our sin. No more payments needed. Not a drop. It's done. It's over. That's why Romans 8 says there's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. None. It's over. Jesus paid it all. And so just to make sure everyone understands what we mean when we say resurrection, we're not talking about some ethereal, mystical, ghost-like idea or some metaphorical resurrection. We're talking about a literal, physical, bodily resurrection. That after being murdered on the cross on Friday, he's dead from Friday afternoon until Sunday morning. And then on Sunday morning, he stopped being dead. He was alive again. He rose as he and the scriptures had said he would do. And that's why the body's gone. He's alive. This is one of the major differences in all the world religions. For example, Jews follow Abraham. And you can go to Abraham's tomb in Hebron. Buddhists follow Buddha. And you can go visit some of his relics in Sri Lanka. Muslims follow Muhammad, and you can go to his tomb in Medina. And if you go to these places, you know who's in Abraham's tomb? Abraham. You know who's in Buddha's tomb? Buddha. You know who's in Muhammad's tomb? 
Muhammad. You know who's in Jesus' tomb? Nobody. He's empty. There's no one home. He's risen. He's alive. And so listen to me. Christians do not follow a dead religious founder. We follow a living man. His name was Jesus, and he's Lord, God, Savior, and King. And the resurrection is the proof of all of it. And listen to me. The resurrection is also the hope in your own life that whatever's gone dark can be resurrected. We, friends, we have great reason for hope this morning. Great reason for hope. So he rises again, and after his resurrection, he's seen by scores of men. All the apostles see him, and even beyond that, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that, and he goes all to LeVar Burton reading Rainbow. Don't take my word for it. Take that. He says there's 500 people in Jerusalem who've seen him. You can go ask them. So he rises again. He appears to many. And then 40 days later, he ascends back into heaven. And that's what line three of our hymn is about. He's seen by angels. Like after he gathered his disciples on a mountaintop in Galilee, he gives them their final marching orders, and then he ascends back into heaven. And so think about this with me. Luke 15.10 says that uh, myriad of angels rejoice in heaven at the salvation of one person. All right, Myriad of heavens rejoice in heaven at the salvation of one person. And so can you imagine what they must have done when the son came home whose blood bought all those redeemed people? Can you imagine what these myriads of angels must have done when the Lord of glory returned home? It had to be insane. I hope they have it on DVR. I want to watch it when I get to heaven. <laughs> and so you've got this story, this promise of one to come. He's going to fix all that's gone wrong. And so he comes, he lives, he dies, he rises again, he ascends back into heaven. In line four now, he's being proclaimed among the nations. He's being believed on in the world. That's happening right now. It's been happening for thousands of years, and it's happening right now all around the world. Christianity is growing on every single continent on the face of the earth except North America. Some of them are like, what about Europe? Absolutely in Europe. All of this is happening. And while line six of the hymn, taken up or received in glory, seems like it could be another reference to the ascension. Eh, maybe. But I think instead what it is is a poetic reference to the second coming of Christ. Because the second coming of Christ is clearly connected to the ascension in Acts 1.11. Where the angels say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus was taken from you into heaven and he will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. And Jesus is going to come again. He's going to crack the sky. He's going to come on the clouds of heaven and he's going to come back to this world. And when he does, it's going to be like one of my favorite books in all the world, Lord of the Rings. It's going to be just as Samwise Gamgee asked Gandalf, does this mean that all the sad things are coming untrue? Yes, it does. 
is absolutely what Christ's second coming means. All the sad things are coming untrue. All that's gone wrong in the world will be made right. Death will be dead. Sin will go extinct. Pain will be over. Injustice will end. Christ will reign in victory and glory forever and ever and ever. And every knee, whether you want to or not, will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the great mystery of the Bible. The one story across all of it. Creation, fall, redemption, and this coming restoration. And it's happening. Christ has been manifested in the flesh. He's been vindicated in the Spirit. He's been seen by angels. He's being proclaimed in the nations. He's being believed on in the world. And for those who trust in Christ It's going to all wrap up someday with Christ returning and believers from every tongue and every nation and every ethnicity and every language standing in front of the throne, worshiping the Lamb in a new heavens and a new earth with no more justice, no more pain, no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more sin, no more death. Death's on the clock. His days are numbered. And everything will be made right. Paradise will be restored because Christ walked out of the grave. So yes, indeed, He is risen. And there's reason for all hope and rejoicing this day. Oh God, we praise you for your grace and your mercy and your gospel and what you've done for us in Christ, the salvation that you've given, though we do not deserve it. Though we are sinners, though we are rebels, though we continue even to rebel against you and you in your infinite grace continue to pour out your mercy upon us, your love upon us. And we thank you and we praise you for this, God. We thank you that the grave was empty and that there is hope now for the world. A hope that's been confirmed. It's a guaranteed hope because there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. And how, Father, I pray that this would stir us up to take this message, those of us who are believers, and hold it up like pillars hold up a roof to hold up the truth to the world. And how I pray for those of us who are maybe thinking about these things, Lord, that you would, in your grace and goodness, just bother us with this message, that we can't get away from it. And we'd think on it, and we'd process it, and, it would, and you would deal with us and open our eyes and give us faith to believe Receive our praise, God. Glory to your name for your goodness. It's in that name we pray. Amen.